This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have with us the distinguished professor of social sciences at Baylor University, the founder of Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion, and the author of several wonderful books and essays on religion, crime, and prison reform, and many other topics. He's the incredible Byron Johnson. And by way of introduction, I'll simply note how appropriate it is that we're talking about the book of Genesis on Good Faith Effort these last several episodes. And in fact, this week we're starting to talk about the story of Joseph. Because Joseph, after all, is probably the most famous incarcerated person in history, right? For sure in the top five all time. And look, so much can be said about Joseph's time in prison. It's a really rich narrative. But one of my favorites and also one of the oldest traditions about Joseph's time in prison which appears in some incredibly early sources, is that Joseph was released from prison on the first day of the biblical new year. This appears in some of the oldest sources we have commenting on the Bible. And it seems so appropriate to me because this moment, after all, when Joseph is released from prison, was the beginning of a brand new chapter, not only in Joseph's life, but in light of all the people he influenced both at the time and for millennia after, in our lives as well. There was something about Joseph's time in prison that transformed him. And if we know anything about the cruelty and capriciousness of biblical Egypt, we can be pretty confident that this was despite the Egyptian prison system and not because of it. But is it possible to learn from that transformative experience of Joseph in prison and aspiring to make our own society better, to improve our own moral health? To unpack all of this, I brought on the literal world expert on the intersection of faith, criminal justice, and the prison justice system, a professor of social sciences at Baylor and director of its Institute for Studies of Religion, Byron Johnson. Byron, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be with you today. So how did you get interested in the study of criminology in the first place? And what led you specifically to focus on religion as the center of your research? Well, it's interesting. I was a grad student in psychology and I was working on the construction crew by day and going to school at night. And one of the people on this crew mentioned to me that there was a job in the city for a parole officer. And I thought, that sounds kind of interesting. He said, yeah, you should apply for it. And I did. And I was hired with no experience whatsoever or background in criminal justice. As I found Mm -hmm. out later, it's on the job training. And I really enjoyed the work, but I knew it was something that I wouldn't want to do for a career. So I did it for a year and then I changed directions with my graduate education and began to pursue a PhD in criminology. And since I was interested in religion as a person growing up in a devoutly religious family, I thought these two should be studied together. And As a grad student, though, I couldn't find hardly any research that connected the idea of religion to deviant behavior. So I remember talking to some professors about it, saying, you know, I'd like to study religion. And they thought, well, that's not a good way to be thinking about your professional career. And I said, well, if you want to get tenure at an elite university. Exactly. But I remember saying, look, the fact that there's nothing written on the subject would seem to indicate that there needs to be a body of evidence out there and that they couldn't contest. And so that was in the mid 1980s. And of course, 
since then, along with a number of other people, a whole literature now has developed connecting the dots between these two interesting subjects of religion on the one hand and crime and deviance on the other hand. And how are they connected? And, and so for the last 35 years or so, that's what, exactly what I've been doing is to study that. And of course, what you, you find is that religion keeps people out of trouble in the first place. Right. That, that's one of the most consistent findings that we have is that you know, people of faith are much less likely to be involved in illegal behaviors, drug abuse, you name it. But let's say once someone does find themselves involved in crime or delinquency, religion is a tool to help people correct their paths and get on a different trajectory. And so I spent a fair bit of time studying that part of it too, as well as the role of religion in helping people do the right things. You know, instead of thinking, what puts you at harm's way? What are the risk factors that lead people into a crime-filled life? I like to look at what are the factors that help people make the right decisions? Why do most people abide by the law? And what you find out, of course, is that for many people, faith is that overriding factor that keeps them from doing things that are wrong in the first place. And one of the fields that you speak and write a great deal about, and that, as I understand, you've also been instrumental in helping to develop, is positive criminology. So what is positive criminology? So why is it that so many people volunteer? Why do so many people share their blessings with other people? You know, they're generous. Americans give more than a billion dollars a day to charities. Just think about that for a second. That is a crazy number, by the way. So, yeah, over a billion dollars a day. Why are people so generous? I think what you hear so often in the media is that people are not generous, that they're very selfish. But that is, in fact, not the case. There are so many people that do these wonderful acts of service and generosity to others. Why do they do that? And for many of them, they feel compelled to do so. And why do people mentor disadvantaged kids? Is it fun? Well, if you talk to people that mentor especially difficult, at-risk children, it's not an easy thing to do. And it's not necessarily something that they enjoy doing, but they'll tell you they feel called to do it and they feel fulfilled in doing so. So these are what we call pro-social kinds of behaviors. And so I wanted to bring that into the field of criminology. So I don't want to study why is it that if you have the following characteristics, you're more likely to commit a violent crime. I would like to say, what are the factors that prevent you from doing that? And what are the kinds of things that help you make positive decisions? And so the whole field of positive criminology looks at the other side of the coin, a more positive side of the coin than the more negative one of what is the chance that you're going to be the victim of a violent crime, for example. Right. And now, once you come into the system, into the prison system, what role does positive criminology play in the prison system? Well, positive criminology actually comes from something called positive psychology, which maybe a lot of your viewers will be familiar with. We actually just uh, had Tal Ben-Shachar on the podcast uh, a few okay. weeks ago. So, friend of the pod. Well, Marty Seligman, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, kind of the father of positive psychology... So I met with Marty and I said, you know, I'm going to go to Baylor. And I said, one of the things I want to do there is you know, develop this field of positive criminology. And he said, I think that sounds like a fantastic idea. And so it's the idea of, 
you know, looking at the more positive side of human behavior, even among people who've done things that are pretty horrific, how can offenders, for example, be used as assets for good? It's kind of a paradigm shift. Instead of thinking, well, we're going to warehouse all these people in a bad place that have done bad things, how about how can we take people who, for whatever reason, have in fact been involved in illegal behaviors, but what can we do to really help them? That's why prisons actually were started in the first place as places for correction and reform instead of places known primarily for punishment. And so positive criminology says, what is it that we might do that helps people rethink their past and their future to one that is much more positive most people go to prison with the idea that they're going to get out. And indeed, most of them are going to get out. And so do we want people to come out of prison in a better position and place than they left society? And the answer is, of course, we don't want people coming back to society that are even more learned criminals than the ones that went in. And so regrettably, we have spent most of our time thinking in the wrong way, I would argue. And so what is it that we can do that would be different? And so one of the things that we've tried to do is to understand, can religion be a part of this puzzle of figuring out human behavior and how to help people make the right kinds of choices in their lives, more positive choices, that instead of harming others, you actually want to serve others. And this is where faith becomes so critical because faith says you don't look at yourself you're to be concerned about your neighbor. You're to love your neighbor. And that's kind of countercultural, actually, from the society that we live in, where we're so self-absorbed and narcissistic. This is why we actually have problems like drug addiction, is that people become isolated, self-absorbed, and they medicate. And this is why we have an opiate crisis right now in America. But faith says, you know... I mean, oftentimes opiates can be a solution. Yes, exactly. And, you know, you have communities, very affluent communities, and then you have communities that are enormously disadvantaged that are all struggling with drug addiction and other forms of substance abuse. But faith comes along and says, you know, how can I serve my brother? How can I love my neighbor? And even we've done studies, Ari, of drug addicts, and we find the same thing. If you can help an addict try to serve other addicts, then the next thing you know, this person is finding themselves on their road to sobriety. And they didn't even know that they had changed, mm. but their focus was on the others in the group. And so this is very powerful. And we find this too among prisoners, that if they'll look to serve other prisoners, then they themselves are being reformed without even knowing it. And so this is the power, I think, of faith and service to others which I think is scriptural, actually, that then you yourself are the beneficiary of this love and service to others. And I think this is a part of the whole pro-social behavior that we're talking about when we're talking about something like positive criminology. It's a much more hopeful outlook than the discouraging kind of an outlook that, oh, guess what? Half the people that get out of prison are going to come right back. What can we do to make that number change? And I think that realistically, our options are minimal since, as I said earlier, so many of our prison programs have been cut. 
it's such an inspiring way of thinking about it that appeals to me very directly. And I'll tell you why, you know, coming from the rabbinate, I can think of several close friends who, whether through chaplaincy or for other reasons, have had close personal encounters with the prison system. And every single one, regardless of political orientation, Mm -hmm. ideological orientation, oftentimes, you know, these are people who aren't very ideological to begin with. Every single one comes away, I can only describe as like shaken by what they've seen, Mm. just in terms of how how horrible the prison system is, how it treats the people who are inside. My own personal encounters from a family perspective with the prison system left me shaken and horrified and angry. And that's not even to touch the criminal justice system with the plea bargaining system and, and, and so forth, which is just an abomination. To build on that, so I'm, I'm so pleased that you mentioned positive psychology earlier, because as I said, we just had Tal Ben-Shachar on the pod. He actually didn't talk about this, but last time that Tal and I were in person, actually for coffee a little bit before COVID, I remember that he brought this up, and I've heard him bring it up before, points out that in the Jewish tradition, the very first word out of your mouth in the morning, so every, every morning, you know, when I wake up, I'm sort of a, as I've said on the podcast many times, very proud religious fanatic. Wake up in the morning, the first word out of your mouth, if you're, you know, traditionally observant, is modeh, modeh ani lefanecha, where you, you say, thank you to God, I, you know, I thank God for, for restoring me to my body, and so on and so forth. Now, Tal points out that syntactically, it's actually a weird way of saying that. If you're speaking Hebrew correctly, you should not say modeh ani, thankful am I, you should say ani modeh, I am thankful. So why is that? And he points out, and I think it's just a lovely explanation, he says, because it's important in the Jewish tradition for the first word out of your mouth every morning to be thank you. And he points to all the literature that suggests how important gratitude is for encouraging and and facilitating well-being. But I think too often, particularly in the age of social media, the first question we usually ask in any situation is, what's going wrong? And we far less frequently begin by asking what's going well, because we like to see the world in terms of challenges rather than opportunities. But temperamentally, as shaken as I and and others could be by the prison system, I guess I'm curious to ask someone like you who's who's studied it for so long and who's thought so deeply about these issues and questions of faith and criminality and criminology, but preeminently as someone who comes from a background of faith and a tradition of hope and aspiration— What's going well right now, and how do we build on that? You know, that's such a great question, and I so appreciate what you said about how you start the day. You'll be pleased to hear that for the last 10 years, we've been studying virtues in prisons. Wow. Like gratitude, humility, forgiveness, and most recently, accountability. These are things that we're studying among prisoners, and you know, It is true that you go into a prison and sometimes you're literally shaken, especially if you go to a third world country where the conditions, I can't even begin to describe how bad the conditions are. Just the odor is overwhelming in some of these third world countries. And yet, invariably, you will meet people who have gratitude, who have humility, who exercise forgiveness. We've seen it. We've measured it. And these people have what you see in scripture referenced as the joy of the Lord. Mm. You see it in their countenance. And because we visit these prisons so often, especially the prison in Louisiana that we studied for five years, Angola, once known as the most violent prison in America, certainly the most corrupt prison in America, 
you interview these people and you see them week after week, month after month, year after year. So in other words, if you're trying to play a game, you're trying to fake me out, you want me to think that you're one way, but you're actually quite another, it isn't going to work because I'm going to interview you a bunch of times, day, night, weekends, it doesn't matter. And that's what I'm saying. You go to these kinds of places that may be very dark, but there is such hope in the lives of so many of these people that invariably you're affected by it. You yourself are encouraged. You leave there having had an offender who's serving a life sentence encourage you. That's what I've seen over and over and over. And so, you know, in the real world, what we call the free world, where you and I live, you see so many people struggling with depression. I go into prison and I see people with joy. Not that they're all that way, but of those that have experienced a profound identity transformation, they are truly different people than the person that was incarcerated 5, 10, 20 years ago. And so it's this unusual contrast where you say, boy, this is a bad place, but look at these people in here that have hope. It's not insincere. It's very authentic. And that, to me, has been very compelling, and I've seen it in prisons all across the U.S. and all across the world, in fact. And so I think there's something that prisoners can teach us, people like you and me that live in the free world. How is it that they have joy that somehow escapes so many of us in the free world? And so that's why in in this most recent book that's coming out next month, we actually talk about lessons that we can learn from prisoners. Wow. That's incredible. Let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and then come right back. And we're back with Byron Johnson. So I actually want to jump off right where we left off. One of the challenges that you identify in your work is that no matter, to a certain extent, no matter what we do in prisons and how successful we can be in in reforming some of the realities there. Once you get out of prison, you encounter sort of a system, whether it's informal, sort of social stigma, or even formal legal official that continues to just be so relentlessly punitive. And as I was, you know, preparing for this conversation, it really just got me thinking about repentance from a religious mm-hmm. standpoint. You know, my tradition mm-hmm. is the Jewish tradition. You're, you know, you're mm-hmm. coming from the Christian tradition. So I know in the Jewish tradition, and there are resonances of this in the Christian tradition as well, although you'd know better than I do. In the Jewish tradition, repentance actually is not a way of reforming yourself. It's actually a way of transforming yourself. Mm. You become an entirely new person. In fact, you can almost alter your past according to some of the great sages of the tradition. And yet society, certainly American society, at least certainly doesn't treat former inmates this way. Now, I raise it because I know kind of in recent months and years, repentance as a concept has gained wide cultural currency when we think, let's say, about something having nothing to do with prisons like cancel culture. Right. And there, repentance and redemption kind of code politically right. But it seems to me that just as it's not even more salient would be in the context of prisons, prison reform and criminal justice reform. So there, repentance and redemption, let's say for former inmates, I think codes politically left. 
So it kind of seems to me actually that one of the great blessings that more religion in the public discourse would bring would just be more of a focus on the possibility of true repentance, transformation, mercy. But the flip side of that is that it kind of feels to me that one of our great national sins on both sides of the political spectrum is just the total lack of mercy and that merciful impulse. So how do we fix that? And I know that's a big question. So, you know, how do we specifically fix that in the context of prisons? It's such a great question that you've asked. It isn't easy. Um, As you correctly point out, so many of these people are coming out of prisons. And I've interviewed so many prisoners coming out, and I've asked them, you know, how are you going to do when you get out? Oh, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be great. And and then some of them will say, is that the right answer? I go, well, (laughs) it's, it's not the answer that I was looking for. Because if you're incarcerated, as they say, the grass is greener. My big problem is I'm incarcerated. Once I get out, I'm not going to do what I did before. Um, but it's unrealistic because the odds against them are quite significant. Housing is a problem. Transportation is a problem. Just getting a job that allows you to pay rent and even finding a place that would rent to you as a convicted felon, these are all enormous challenges. Just getting a driver's license, as I said, is difficult. And so the answer that I'm looking for, if a person has had an identity transformation, this is one of the ways I know, I'll ask them how they're gonna do when they get out. And they're gonna say something like this, I'm worried, right. I'm really worried right. that I could stumble, uh, that I could have a relapse, I know where the old gang hangs out. I know where I can get a hit of drugs pretty easily. Or even like financially, I just, like I know how to make money illegally, but yeah, I don't know exactly. how to make money legally. Right. And so what you're wanting to hear is people to say, I know that if I don't hang around the right kind of people, I know that if I don't find myself in a congregation where I can be accountable to others, I know if I don't stick with my mentor on the outside, that I will come back, and I don't want that to happen. But I know I have these needs, and I need society to come alongside of me. And so the point that you raise is a staggeringly important one, because society unwittingly sometimes turns a deaf ear to these people. And so that's why you have so many people that are so faithful to go into prisons to work inside of prisons, but you have precious few people who are willing to work with people once they get out. Believe it or not, that's the safest thing to do is to go behind bars. It's a little bit more frightening to work with them once they get out. Mm. And so that's where the problem really lies, post-release, what we call re-entry. How do we make re-entry happen? And the only thing that I can say that I've been trying to encourage people is to say, if you feel compelled, it's not for everyone, but should you feel like there is a calling on your life to work with former offenders, please do so because they do need assistance, just like they needed assistance when they were incarcerated. And you've heard of halfway houses, for example, where people coming out of prison live in a facility with some other former offenders as a way of transitioning back because it is a shock to come back to an environment where now no one's looking over your shoulder. In the prison, every movement is controlled, but once you get out, then there's just nothing. You're totally unaccounted for, so to speak. And so that becomes very difficult for people. That's why they really do need communities of faith 
to come alongside of them and for congregations to literally adopt a former offender into their congregation. Well, that's kind of scary thought for a lot of people who have children, but it's the kind of difficult discussions that we do need to be having if, in fact, we want these people who've turned over a new leaf to stay on that right path. So here's something that I thought about as I was getting ready for this conversation, and it's an odd thought, I admit, but I want to run it by you and see if we could try it on for size. So Jewish legal thought is actually some of the most complex and interesting, really, in world history. Sort of, you know, you compare Justinian's code to the Talmud, like the Talmud is like three times the size or more than that. I mean, it's like four or five times the size of Justinian's code. Yeah. Now, Jewish law famously, or I suppose not famously, but <laughs> with amongst Jewish legal theorists, Jewish law doesn't feature a prison system. It actually rejects incarceration for the most part as a form of punishment. And in the traditional Jewish interpretations of the Bible, so biblical criminal law, and by the way, biblical criminal law, that you could just say the same thing just if you were reading the Bible straight up. But Jewish criminal law instead implements punishments that occur immediately and are sort of harsh but over, mm -hmm. you know, in a short time and often are humiliating including flogging, fines, and in extreme circumstances, the death penalty, although very rarely. Now, ironically, flogging in the U.S., at least in the military, was actually outlawed at the initiative of Uriah P. Levy, who was the first Jewish Commodore in the history of the U.S. Navy. But let's say I wanted to make the case for flogging, right? Say in a completely secularized form to a skeptical American in 2021 yeah. as an alternative to the prison system, right? At least, let's say, for nonviolent offender. Yeah. Could that be done? Would you be convinced by that? Or even as a thought experiment, like how would you go about weighing alternatives to the prison system? Or, you know, or is it just, listen, there's there's no way we're ever getting past this. So let's just work with what we have. Yeah, these are valid points that you're raising. I mean, one of the criticisms of our system is that it's not swift and it takes so long just to appear in court. And so some people aren't even sentenced for a crime that they committed for four years. And then you're actually punishing someone that is clearly a different person than the person that committed this act four or five years earlier. And so one of the things that we've studied in criminology right, Like it would be ludicrous it, to parent that way, for example. <laughs> it'd be ludicrous to parent that way. You know, can you imagine punishing your children with that kind of a time lag? Right. And so you're exactly right. If you could administer punishment swiftly that was appropriate, might it be a more of a deterrent than the kind of punishments that we have in place now? I think there's every bit of reason to think that that would be accurate. That's why some of the things that you're talking about, public shaming used to be very common and no one wanted to be shamed publicly. But in the day and age in which we live, ironically, some of this is so non-PC that we could never go there. But yet... Right. It's like, it's so crazy from a justice perspective. Like we've, we've eliminated all of the potential good that right. sort of faith-based, you know, shame traditions could do in the name of justice and eliminating oppression that what we've done instead is kind of gone all in on the most punitive possible system that we could potentially have. It's true. I mean, if you look at prisons where a lot of gangs thrive, for example, in, in some prisons, and in fact, we're doing research in Colombia, South America, in a maximum security prison, where the cartel controls much of the prison itself. Right. So, I mean, you, you think about some of these things, and how do we get here? And then the, the problem is, how do we now reform 
the system that we have. And so you're right, we're probably never going to do what you just described as much sense as it literally makes. But I do think, all right, there are ways in which we can learn from our faith traditions of just the virtues. How can we help people forgive? How can we help people have humility and replace despair with hope? In prison and out, inside the context of criminality and outside. Yes. And so I think these things are possible to do. I don't think that we have done our due diligence in educating people as to the options. I think if we could use our houses of worship as recruiting grounds to say, for those of you that would really like to make a difference in a system that so needs our help, here's how you might be able to do that. We just did a study of a trauma healing program in Virginia where the American Bible Society worked with a prison ministry to go in and tell biblical stories to offenders Mm. to see if these stories would resonate with them instead of just doing traditional kind of scripture things. So these are biblical stories that came from something that they were doing internationally and they brought it into the prisons. And as you know, a lot of these inmates have PTSD. If you're raised on the streets, you've seen violence, you've been exposed to it, you've experienced it. And we now know for a fact that many prisoners suffer with post-traumatic stress. Well, this program that we evaluated literally causes post-traumatic stress to significantly dissipate among offenders. And of course, it's a one-week trauma healing program. And it's led by retired volunteers. Wow. Just elderly people that go in and for 10 hours a week, I guess it is, it's a 10-hour course that they provide to prisoners that they do not know. And it has an enormous effect. And so I think it's interventions like that. Doesn't cost taxpayers anything. People volunteer their time to do it. And yet we found it had an enormous effect in creating more virtuous prisoners. If you're a correctional officer and you work in a prison, you don't want to be hurt by an inmate yourself, right? And and these are high-stress environments. So if we can help offenders become new people, then the environment itself will be a safer environment, not just for offenders, but for people that work there. And these are the kinds of things that I do think good people of faith and our houses of worship can really be value-added in a time when we really need it. That's incredible. And and just as a final question, what can you tell us about your new book coming out? So the new book is called The Restorative Prison, and it's a, a way of taking the last five or six years of our empirical research that we do. We publish in academic journals, but as they say, nobody reads the academic journals, <laughs> but a few eggheads. And so how could you take that research and write it up in a way that's more accessible to people? and publish it in a book that maybe a few more people can read outside of a few criminologists. And that's what this book is. It's a more positive outlook on what we're finding and what might be a more hopeful path for, you know, how we think about incarceration moving forward. Just wonderful. Byron, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's good to be with you. Hope, aspiration, mercy, redemption, justice. 
These are the kinds of virtues we all want to embody and we want our society to embody. But I think it's worth pausing on where these values come from. I mean, to an extent, the potential for this kind of behavior is baked into the human soul, but historically, one of the most powerful forces proliferating these values throughout our society has been and continues to be faith. And even just from a purely literary perspective, some of the most poignant reflections on mercy, justice, redemption in history can be found in the Bible. So as we're thinking about healing some of the thorniest and actually most urgent social ills we have, I think Byron's absolutely on the right track here. Let's think more about how religion can be the light in society that it already is for us as individuals. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, please head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Soul Shot Podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Goodfaith.